Welcome to Breast Cancer Update, Surgeon's Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with two surgical and two medical oncology investigators for an update on what's new and exciting in breast cancer clinical research and what it means to practice. And I was particularly interested in where faculty members stand one year after the landmark ACASOG presentation on management of patients with positive sentinel nodes. To begin comparing notes, I asked Dr. Terry Maminus to present several patients from his practice, and he started out by describing a woman with a multicentric primary invasive breast cancer. So the first case is the 56-year-old female postmenopausal who presented actually interestingly with a small mammographic lesion, which we confirmed by sonography. But to make a long story short, there were a couple other areas on the mammogram that we did not initially appreciate. So we actually did a lumpectomy on her, and it showed essentially a two-centimeter invasive cancer, but it ended up having a lot of positive margins. So we actually did a re-excision on her, persistently positive margins, and eventually ended up with a mastectomy. So from the standpoint of actually diagnostic a multicentric cancer, which it didn't look like it in the beginning, it's an interesting case. But to make a long story short, we did a sentinel biopsy on the first procedure. The sentinel node actually was positive. One of four sentinels were positive. And this was a few months ago. So we went ahead and did an axial dissection, and 17 nodes actually were negative. So that brings the point of completion axial dissection in this setting. We can discuss that. But she ended up actually having a mastectomy, and she did have a residual disease. So she had multicentric breast cancer, was ear peer positive, and HER2 negative. So I'm sure one of the reasons you wanted to present this woman is that you chose to do an axillary dissection in her in the face of a positive sentinel node. And over the past year, that's been much debated, specifically since ASCO 2010, when the ACASOG presented their trial. Yeah, well, that's a little bit of a complicated discussion. And I know I may not be on the same boat with some of my colleagues on this, but certainly the results of the ACOSOG Z11 trial had an impact, as you know in terms of needing to complete the axial dissection. There are a couple issues, of course. One is that the patient needs to have breast-conserving therapy and radiation, at least that's what the patients that enter the study. So that's not necessarily applicable to a mastectomy patient, although obviously at the time that we did that, we were planning to do breast-conserving therapy. I must say that I haven't yet changed my practice. I discussed the results with the patients, but I still tell the patients that I will do an intraoperative assessment of the nodes, And if I find that they're positive on intraoperative assessment, I'm more likely to complete the axillary dissection for these patients. Again, the Z11 study was a very important study. As you know, though, it was underpowered for the endpoint that they were seeking. And just to refresh everybody's memory, that was a randomization between axillary dissection and not. Not for patients that have one or two positive sentry nodes, were lumpectomy patients that all received breast radiotherapy, and there were T1 and T2 tumors. Now, they originally, as you know, set out to accrue about 1,900 patients, and according to their projections, that we give them 500 deaths to have enough power to detect significant differences in survival. They ended up with 94 deaths, so it's close to about a fifth of the events that they were projecting. And the interesting thing about this study was actually when you look at the results, clearly there was no significant difference. But actually the sentinel node alone group did a little bit better than the axial dissection group. So there's really, to me, no biologic reason why that would be the case, except that perhaps there was an imbalance in the two groups, and maybe the sentinel node group, by just chance alone, had a little bit better outcome. That was seen in the in-breast recurrence rates, which was a little bit higher for the axial dissection group. 
And obviously the survival and disease-free survival curves that were the center node biopsy were on top, but not by much, obviously. The issue, of course, is that, you know, when you dissect the data, about 25% of the patients in that study had additional positive nodes. So really about 100 patients per group had disease that was left behind by the surgeon, and you hope that maybe radiation took care of it. But when it boils down to essentially is a comparison of 100 patients per group. Now, the effect, to some extent, gets diluted by the other three-quarters of the patients that had negative nodes, and you wouldn't have expected any difference in those patients. And the interesting thing, and I've done a lot of thinking about that, obviously this study was built on the B32 trial and the other trials of negative sentinel biopsy in terms of survival, But even if you actually look at the B32 trial, which, as you know, randomized 5,600 patients and had a false negative rate of about 10%. And that was for people with sentinel node negative disease. Negative, right. And then the nodal positivity rate in that study was about 26%. And so with a false negative rate of 10% and a positivity rate of 26%, in reality, there were only about 70 patients that were left nodes behind because of the false negative sentinel node. So you would assume there were about 70 patients on the other group that were dissected. So these are really the only groups of patients that can be sort of informative in the trial. But as you can understand, this is only 2.6% of the total population of the study. So this study was designed, the B32 was designed to show a 2% difference in survival. They had enough power to detect that. But you actually, when you dissect the study, it was almost impossible to see a 2% difference in survival because you're only comparing essentially 70 patients in each group. Now, you could argue that if you dissect negative sentinel nodes <laughs> or negative axillary nodes, you may get a difference because some studies have shown that the number of removed nodes, even if negative, is prognostic. But if we assume that dissecting negative nodes doesn't have an impact, the whole trial really is boiling down to about 70 patients per group. So I don't think we know what happens to these patients. Now, you can say, so what? You know, if you're negative sentinel node, you have 97.4% chance of being totally negative anyway, so that's fine, and that's what we do sentinel node biopsy alone for negative sentinel nodes. But for positive sentinel nodes, where the chance is about 25% to have additional nodes, in my mind, I cannot be sure that we potentially could be harming patients by leaving nodes behind. And of course, there are other issues in terms of staging. Obviously, if you know if you have four positive nodes or more, you may you know, change your radiation fields and so forth. So that's why I haven't yet adopted fully the results of the Z11 trial. I'm waiting to see maybe other trials to be supportive of that. What about the older patient, octogenarian? Yeah, octogenarian is interesting enough because by far surgeons, even in my hospital, sometimes would not do any procedure because the old dogma was don't even dissect the nodes. I must say that for a fit octogenarian, I still do a sentinel node biopsy. Now, in that patient, obviously, even with a positive sentinel node, I may be inclined not to do a lot more in terms of the morbidity associated with it. But in general, I think, again, I'm trying to incorporate the results in my practice, but I find myself that I still tell the patients that I like to do an intraoperative assessment. If I find a positive sentinel node, I'm right there, the axilla is open, I'll do a level one and two dissection in most cases. On the other hand, there's a different situation if you take three or four sentinel nodes and then the pathologist comes back and says they're negative, and then on permanent section he says, well, there's a little micromet or one sentinel node had disease, then I may be more inclined not to go back for these patients and do a completion axilla dissection as a second procedure because usually the disease is less in the node, that's why it wasn't detected by intraoperative assessment. So the disease burden is less, and the chance of having additional positive nodes, it's much lower.
Okay, so this lady has one positive sentinel node. I don't know whether you got into this or not, or whether you typically get into this with your patients, but what was her thinking about the possibility of getting adjuvant chemo? Did she have any kind of feelings about it as you kind of got started there? Well, she wasn't all that crazy about receiving adjuvant chemotherapy, but if she needed it, I think she was willing to do it. So, I mean, that kind of sounds like a common sort of approach that patients have in this situation. What was the next step? Well, we referred to oncology, and we discussed it at tumor board. And given that she had sort of low burden of nodal disease, we decided that maybe an oncotype test would be informative in her case. And we did that for two reasons. The main reason, obviously, was to see if she has a low recurrence score, perhaps avoid adjuvant chemotherapy for her. But in the second reason, in the back of our mind, was also that if she had a low recurrence score, we struggled a little bit with the issue of post-mastectomy radiotherapy. And she had one positive node, although the node has a low burden, I think it was like 1.5 millimeters. So it was micrometastasis. So we weren't all that sort of crazy about giving her post-operative radiotherapy, but wanted to maybe get a little bit more confirmation for this decision. That's really fascinating because I know you had a paper looking at local recurrence and oncotype. I think it was node negative, but right. what do we know about oncotype and prediction of benefit from post-mastectomy radiation therapy? We don't know much about prediction of benefit, but we know about risk for recurrence. My paper was in non-negative patients from the B14 and B20 trials, and in tamoxifen-treated patients, what we found in the paper was that clearly oncotype was prognostic in terms of local regional recurrence, both in mastectomy and breast conservation, but mostly in mastectomy patients. In fact, mastectomy patients with non-negative disease treated with tamoxifen alone had only 1% to 2% risk of chest wall recurrence if they had a low oncotype score, whether they were younger or older. In fact, the older ones were about 1.5%. So if you take sort of that data and extrapolate it to a low burden, not positive patient, assuming that maybe the risk was a lot higher, but still you can extrapolate that maybe the risk would be in the range of 2 to 3% if they have a low oncotype score, in which case, obviously, you may feel more comfortable avoiding post-mastectomy radiation. I don't want to say that this is a standard of care or something that we have data with. We're actually looking at this for not positive patients. But at this point, you can sort of extrapolate a little bit from the non-negative patients if they have a mastectomy. That's a really fascinating thought that I've never heard before. And I'm just as, as you were starting to talk about it, I was thinking about the trials that are already out there, you know, the same kind of strategy. You go back to a study that's already being done in post-mastectomy radiation therapy. What are you thinking of looking at or what are you looking at? Well, if you want to look at tamoxifen or endocrine therapy-treated patients alone, I don't know if the SWOG8814 has data broken down by local recurrence versus distant recurrence. That was the node-positive study. Right, right. Then the trans-attack, though, does, because they reported their results with the oncotype. So I actually want to reach out to their investigators and see if they can look at the local recurrence rates, because they had no positive and no negative patients in that trial. And, of course, the trans-attack was looking at anastrozole right. versus tamoxifen. Right. Is, it's really fascinating. I'm just kind of trying to process this. I guess they kind of confirmed what had been seen previously with the NSABP data. And, yeah, I guess you could look at radiation therapy after mastectomy. Sure, because, well, that's sort of the fly in the ointment. And the question is, how many of their patients had post-mastectomy radiotherapy? In our trials, nobody has post-mastectomy radiotherapy up in the late 90s. But assuming that they have a good cohort of patients that did not get post-mastectomy radiotherapy, you could look at the oncotype effect on local regional recurrence in mastectomy patients and see if we can sort of confirm some of the data that we've seen in non-negative patients. 
So, I mean, I guess just sort of thinking about this, it'd be really interesting to look at people like this patient with one or two positive nodes where typically they don't get post-mastectomy radiation therapy and see if the high recurrence score had a higher recurrence rate. Exactly, exactly. And I think that if what we see in the distant recurrence translates into local recurrence, certainly we have no reason to believe that it wouldn't, I think we'll see the same trend. We'll see that the local recurrence in one to two, three positive node patients with a low oncotype score probably will be low enough that maybe you can avoid radiation. Now, I am looking at actually one of the NACBP studies, now B28. Now, that study was chemotherapy and endocrine therapy, AC or AC paclitaxel. But sort of considering the fact that they got chemotherapy, I'm still looking at patients now post-mastectomy, and we're going to do the oncotype score to see if the oncotype score will be predictive of local regional recurrence risk, and thus maybe inform us a little bit about the need for post-mastectomy radiotherapy. So it will be very interesting. That is really fascinating. So here's a lady with one positive node who's 56 years old. You know, maybe three, four years ago, she for sure is getting chemo. What happened? So we did the Oncotype score, and to our surprise, this came back with a very low score, Oncotype score of 2. So taking that into account, we decided to, and the oncologist sort of jointly decided not to receive adjuvant chemotherapy. And in addition, we did not proceed with any post-mastectomy radiation as well for her. Because, again, she has the implant, and she's going to plan on having implant reconstruction. So although, you know, I discuss with patients the option of what the MD Anderson approach of the immediate delay reconstruction. So we'll put the implant at the time of surgery. If we deem that we need to give her radiotherapy, we can deflate the implant, give chest wall radiotherapy, and then proceed with a second stage reconstruction with a flap. Or if she doesn't need radiation, then you can just expand the expander and then put the implant on. Fascinating. You know, one other question kind of related to this whole scenario, particularly with surgeons, because I think they really are involved with this question, which is the alternative to an oncotype, which is mammoprint. Right. How would you compare that both in terms of the data and the technology? Well, as you know, the technologies are different. Mammoprint is based on DNA microarray. Data oncotype is based on RT-PCR. Oncotype can be done in fixed paraffin embedded tissue. Mammoprint needs fresh or frozen tissue. Oncotype gives you a continuous score from 0 to 100, and for every increment of the recurrence score, the risk of recurrence goes up. So it's not a stepwise test. Mammoprint is the dichotomous test, gives you a good signature or a poor signature based on the probability of the patient to be closer to a good signature or a poor signature. So that's a dichotomous result. Obviously, from a practical standpoint, we have gone into the mode of using Oncotype more because you can do it in fixed paraffin embedded tissue. And obviously, the fact that you can do it in fixed paraffin embedded tissue allowed the development of Oncotype to proceed in the validation with data from randomized trials where we can assess both the prognosis and also the predictive benefit from chemotherapy in a more sort of comprehensive approach. Similar data exists with Mammoprint, but it's not exactly to the same rigor because obviously they don't have clinical data from randomized trials because there are not many trials that collected fresh tissue that you can go back, now have the follow-up, and do this test. So I must say we use mostly Oncotype in our institution. Actually, we haven't used Mammoprint, but I think if you have the low Mammoprint score, there's clear evidence that the patient will be of low risk of recurrence. Now, whether there is chemotherapy benefit or not with a good signature on Mammoprint, the data are more sketchy, if you like, than with Oncotype, but certainly in the same direction. 
And when you think about it, I think if both tests correlate, and to some extent they do, obviously they pick up a population of patients that have good risk. And so, you know, whichever test gets closer to the truth, I think that's sort of uh, something that you can argue based on the development, but essentially may tell you the same thing. So I'll use this case as a way to ask you something I always ask you when we chat, which is sort of what's new in the NSABP. And I'm kind of curious. I know there's an intergroup study. It's going to try to validate Oncotype in the node-positive situation. Maybe she would have been eligible for that. But what other things are being discussed in the NSABP in terms of new clinical trials? Any interest in looking at genomic markers or oncotite in the neoadjuvant setting? Any new concepts that you all are talking about? Yeah, we do have a concept that we sort of have been kicking around now for the past year or so. Harry Baer has brought it to the working group of the NSABP. And that's essentially is a study to almost kind of replicate the Taylor X trial in the neoadjuvant setting, so put that in that perspective. So according to this trial, taking patients that have sizable ear-positive, HER2-negative breast cancers that are possibly mastectomy candidates, and the key question of the trial is to see if you can downstage them better with endocrine therapy versus chemotherapy, neoadjuvant endocrine therapy versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and use the oncotype test to guide you to that decision. So according to this proposal, patients that have a low oncotype score, they get neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. Patients that have a high recurrent score get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And those that have intermediate recurrent score will be randomized to neoadjuvant endocrine therapy or chemotherapy with the end point of clinical response and conversion from mastectomy to lumpectomy. Now, obviously, in the adjuvant setting after surgery, they all can get chemotherapy if they want to or if they're not positive and for whatever reason. But this is just a clinical study to see what is the best way to downstage in the intermediate recurrent score. And also, it will give us an idea of sort of what is the pathologic response rate with neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the high recurrent score patients, which are obviously are chemotherapy sensitive. So that's an idea that we've been sort of discussing, and hopefully soon we'll submit maybe a concept for consideration for this study. I've been kind of surprised that that kind of study hasn't been done. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Our surveys show that only 25% of oncologists have ever ordered an archetype in the neoadjuvant setting, yet, I mean, wouldn't you kind of predict that, you know, if you did the oncotype in a patient and it was very, very low and they needed tumor shrinkage to get a breast-conserving surgery, that they would do better on hormones? I mean, have you ever done that yourself? No, but I mean, people have done it. I mean, not necessarily with the oncotype as the decision point, but, you know, older patients with ear-positive disease that we don't want to give them neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we give neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. Matt Ellis has done a lot of work on that and has published several papers. But I don't think formally that has been done in terms of the decision point, in terms of which one gives you better clinical downstaging. Because, frankly... You know, as we have evolved with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we now, at least personally, I feel a lot more enthusiastic about neoadjuvant chemotherapy for patients with HER2-positive disease, for triple-negative breast cancers. But when it comes to ER-positive breast cancers, I always take a pause and I'm like, well, are we going to downstage them well here? Are we going to get them to PCR? PCR rates are fairly low. And I must say that although it makes intuitive sense to use Oncotype on a core biopsy and make that decision, I would not necessarily in the mode of doing that routinely. So I've been a little bit more gun-shy by giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy to ER-positive patients. I mean, if it's a high-grade ER-positive patient, somebody that has rapidly growing disease, of course. But you know, when it comes to like the lobular carcinomas, when it comes to those very ER-PR-positive patients with intermediate or low-grade, 
I don't think chemotherapy has a big effect. So that would be a way to kind of quantify that. But, you know, again, you know, you can kind of think that that must be the case or it's likely to be the case, but yet, I mean, you haven't even done it once. Right. And very few people have even done it. Yeah, very few. I mean, I don't know if that's a function of maybe there aren't cases out there, but there should be, right? Well, to some extent. you must have seen patients like that. Yeah, we do every so often, but not many because obviously these are slower-growing tumors and they don't reach the locally advanced stage of the large operable breast cancer stains where we need to do a mastectomy for. Now, when it comes to lobular carcinomas, that's the case frequently, but then those, my bias is that we're almost never going to get them to be downstaged with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And also, I don't think we're going to downstage them a lot with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy because if you're not going to get to the PCR level, a pathologic-complete response level, it's unlikely that you will convert them to breast conservation. So you ask yourself, why am I really treating here with a neoadjuvant approach if I'm not going to make them breast conservation candidates, and most likely I won't downstage their nodes either to pathologic complete response. So maybe these patients actually may be served better by surgery first and then adjuvant therapy because you eliminate the disease, which otherwise you may live there for six months and potentially harm the patients if the therapy that you're giving is totally ineffective. That makes sense. And I'm just not sure, for example, how often you know you see a patient who does not have locally advanced breast cancer yet they kind of need a response in order to get breast-conserving surgery. Right. That's not very, very often, actually, I must say. Yeah. Most of the patients, you can actually do a lumpectomy. Right. Maybe that's the reason it's not seen that much. Anything else, as long as we're bringing up the issue of neoadjuvant therapy, anything new and exciting? You know, one issue that's been a hot button in the past, I'm not sure if it's been resolved, is the issue of sentinel node. Right. Well, this is still sort of an issue that sort of partially is achieving consensus and partially not. I think most people are starting now to agree that if you have a clinically negative node before neoadjuvant chemotherapy and you give neoadjuvant chemotherapy and you get a good response and you do a sentinel biopsy that is negative, most people will agree not to complete the axial dissection. Where still the point of contention is for patients that present with clinically palpable or cytologically positive nodes before neoadjuvant chemotherapy, where you know there's disease there, and then you have very good response to chemotherapy, they become clinically non-negative, and the debate is, is sentinel biopsy alone a good option for these patients, or should you complete the axial dissection with the idea of evaluating what is the false negative rate? And in fact, for those patients, I now sort of finally considered and put them on the ACOSOC-Z1071 trial which is exactly a trial that takes patients with positive nodes before neoadjuvant chemotherapy with good response, and then does the sentinel biopsy, and then everybody gets a completion axial dissection, just to evaluate what is the performance of sentinel biopsy in this setting. So this trial is accrued actually very well from what I hear, and they have over 500 patients, so it will eventually reach its accrual very soon, and it will give us some good metrics for the performance of sentinel biopsy in this setting. That's fascinating. What about the issue of neoadjuvant therapy in HER2-positive disease? We've seen some interesting data on that. Where do you think that's heading? And again, anything being discussed in the NSABP? Yeah, that's actually also a fascinating story, obviously, as you know, with the introduction of trastuzumab with chemotherapy and now with some of the newer agents, lapadinib, pertuzumab, TDM1. I think there's a lot of excitement in this field. One thing that we have discussed at the NSABP, again, going back to the local regional therapy theme, which is probably a big step moving forward, and whether we can do it or not, and whether it's feasible, it's still a matter of debate. But we're reaching pathologic complete response rates 50 or 60%, and likely to go even higher when these new monoclonals and small molecules are incorporated in the chemotherapy regimen. So 
we're reaching the point where we say maybe we don't need to do surgery for these patients. So a concept that has been sort of, again, we've been kicking it around, and also a similar concept was developed by RTOG, and now that they're actually, as you know, the word on the street is now that we're merging with RTOG, and we have discussions to that effect. So a concept is to take patients with HER2 positive, and by the way, you also can include triple negatives, that get a very good clinical and radiologic response, a complete radiologic response. And if you then confirm that by another core biopsy or a stereotactic biopsy, then potentially avoid formal surgical resection and move the patients to radiotherapy. Now, whether you can do a randomized trial to prove whether surgery is needed or not, whether that's feasible or not, is debatable because the local recurrence rates for these patients in breast recurrence is very low. It's about 5% in our clinical trials after a pathologic complete response. So it may not be feasible to do a randomized trial, but certainly it would be a nice sort of transition to the whole theme of as systemic therapy gets more effective, local regional therapy certainly can be minimized. Another approach may be even to avoid radiotherapy for these patients, but again, that's something that can be explored in the future. So there is a proposal that came out of Montreal, one of investigators in Montreal, and again, another proposal that came from RTOG. So we're trying to sort of see if we can merge those together and come up with some trial to assess this. So I'm just kind of curious. I don't think it would go in the interview, but I knew there were things going on in the cooperative groups with merging and all this stuff. So specifically, the NSABP and RTOG are merging? Yeah, there has been a lot of discussions, and there's been a letter of intent, if you like, that was signed between NSABP and RTOG to form one group. And does that mean that that group is going to deal with more than breast and colon? No, I think that that group probably will deal also with a lot of local regional therapy issues for other malignancies, like RTOG has done before but also sort of the breast and colorectal programs to some extent will be amalgamated into one. Another study, maybe I'll put the plug on, that has recently opened in the adjuvant setting is the B47 trial. And this is a trial that builds on the observation from the NSABP B31, the trastuzumab trial, that perhaps the benefit from trastuzumab extends past the traditional definition of HER2 positivity. So this is a trial for patients with 1+, plus, 2+, plus by immunohistochemistry, HER2 tumors, that will receive adjuvant chemotherapy. They have to be fish negative, of course. So one plus, two plus, fish negative, and then the randomization is between adjuvant chemotherapy with or without trastuzumab. And the chemotherapy can be either a TC regimen, docetaxel, cyclophosphamide times six, or the traditional AC followed by weekly paclitaxel regimen as we used in the NCCTG9831. So let's talk about your 19-year-old woman who came in because her mother had breast cancer. Well, yeah, her mother, interestingly enough, I took care of her mother several years ago, about 11, 12 years ago. She had a BRCA mutation, so we did actually bilateral prophylactic mastectomies for her, and she was at the age of 35 at the time, and her mother had had breast cancer. And essentially, we found some DCIS on one of the prophylactic mastectomies, but essentially were fine. She didn't receive any additional therapy, and she's done fine. Her daughter came of age and then wanted to be tested, and recently she was tested and found to carry the same mutation. Incidentally, what would have been the statistical probability of her having that mutation? About 50%. Right. Yeah. So interestingly enough, we have discussed with the mother when to test the daughter, and you know, we said, well, this is sort of an individual decision. Whenever she's come of age and wants to know, I think she needs to be tested. So this young woman was very determined to find out, so she was tested. 
And interestingly enough, she came to my office and said, you know, I want to have a bilateral mastectomy and I want to have it now, which is a little bit different than most people will do. Typically, we'll wait till they have children, till they, you know, nurse the children, and then we obviously eventually remove the ovaries. And if they want prophylactic mastectomy, we'll do that as well. What was your assessment of her as a person? Was she in school or what was going on? She's in school and she's engaged and she's a very stable, a very emotionally stable person, very determined of what to do. And it wasn't one of those sort of fly-by-night decisions. She had thought this very, very well. And she said, you know, I have some time now and I want to get it done. So if she were to ask you, what's the chance I'm going to develop breast cancer in the next 10 years? In other words, can I wait 10 years? What would you have said? I would say that the chances are pretty low for the next 10 years, from the age of 19 to 29. Usually, cancers don't occur before the age of 30. There's no guarantee of that, though. I mean, we've seen cases of 28 or 27 with breast cancer and BRCA mutation. I mean, could you give her a number? Uh, I would say not more than 10, 15%. And that's even a high number, I think. Right. But obviously, her lifetime risk is substantial. It's probably in the range of 70 to 80% particularly given sort of the penetrance in the family that female members tend to get it. So we had a long discussion, and she saw the plastic surgeon, and we eventually decided to go ahead with the surgery, which actually hasn't taken place yet. It's going to happen next week. And I talked to her about the possibility of nipple-sparing mastectomy versus skin-sparing mastectomy. And again, after a long discussion, that's an issue of debate, obviously, for BRCA patients. In this country, we tend to not believe too much in nipple-sparing mastectomy for BRCA patients. Our European colleagues actually have done it more frequently, and they believe in the safety of the procedure. So what we decided we're going ahead with is to do a nipple-sparing mastectomy and try to core out the central ducts of the nipple so we remove as much of breast tissue as possible without obviously compromising the blood supply. So that's what she's scheduled for for next week, and she'll have bilateral implant reconstruction. How about her ovaries? I think she still wants to have children, so I think we'll wait for the ovaries until she completes her childbearing, and then we'll probably do that later. So why don't we just briefly talk about this 41-year-old woman? Yeah, this is actually a fascinating case that we actually sort of presented as a poster. This is a 41-year-old who came with a large palpable mass, about 4 by 4 centimeter in the upper part of the right breast. He had a 2 centimeter node. Make long story short, on the mammogram, in addition to the mass, she had an extensive area of microcalcifications occupying most of the upper part of the breast. She also had the family history in two paternal cousins with breast cancer in their 40s. So core biopsy showed invasive ductal carcinoma. The FNA of the node showed positive node. And it was ER positive at 85%, PR 6%, and then HER2 new was 3 plus by immunosochemistry. So we discussed options and we discussed neoadjuvant chemotherapy, although we said to her that, first of all, based on your family history, but also based on the fact that you have these extensive microcalcifications, it's probably unlikely that we'll downstage you to the point of a lumpectomy, but certainly maybe we can downstage the axillary nodes. There's some issues with the local regional radiotherapy with that. So we ended up going ahead with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. She got AC followed by paclitaxel and trastuzumab, as in the NIDA31 weekly paclitaxel and trastuzumab. She had an excellent response. In fact, actually, even after the four cycles of AC, she achieved a clinical complete response. And we restaged her after the paclitaxel and trastuzumab finished. The mass had disappeared, both on mammography, MRI was totally negative. The axillary node had become obviously clinically negative, and by MRI was normal. But the mammogram still showed these extensive microcalcifications occupying the whole part, the upper part of the breast. 
because of her family history, she was interested in having bilateral mastectomy, and I think that was reasonable because she developed it at 41 and had two paternal cousins in her 40s. So I went ahead with a bilateral skin sparing mastectomy, and the pathology report was very interesting because we found no residual disease including no DCIS. Now, mind you that when we did the original core biopsy, we did find invasive breast cancer and high-grade DCIS and microcalcifications on the specimen, so we knew they were there. And actually, when we looked at the pathology specimen, there were ducts that had microcalcifications, clearly, but the ducts were normal. So everything was gone. Now, I mean, again, in the back of my mind, you can always say, well, did you sample every little piece of the breast? I'm not sure of that. Obviously, the pathologists do a good job looking at that. But it's an interesting phenomenon to see sort of DCIS disappear with new adjuvant chemotherapy. Obviously, maybe trastuzumab here plays a role. I'm not sure, but I would suspect that this may be one of the important factors because I haven't seen DCIS go away with new adjuvant chemotherapy. We always see residual DCIS. And that, as you know, still constitutes a pathologic complete response if the invasive cancer is eliminated. But in this case, actually, she had a total pathologic complete response. And of course, the NSAVP is looking at trastuzumab in DCIS. Right. We are looking at trastuzumab in DCIS in terms of radiosensitization, two doses of trastuzumab with radiotherapy for HER2-positive DCIS. So we do central testing for that. But it'd be interesting to see that also as an endpoint in some of the new adjuvant trastuzumab trials that have been reported, like the new ALTO and then the B41 and the NOAA trial, to see if pathologic response in terms of how much residual DCIS you have versus total pathologic complete response is different in the trastuzumab-containing arm. So that'd be an interesting observation to follow through. Did you mention that she had bracket testing? She had bracket testing, was negative. So the thing that really interests me about this is the calcifications. I mean, first of all, complete PATH-CR in a HER2-positive tumor nowadays is certainly not sure, rare. not rare, right. But what's kind of weird or interesting to me is not just only that the DCIS went away, but that the calcification stayed. Stayed, right. What do you think the pathophys... I always thought calcification has something to do with necrosis. Right. I mean, well, what is it? What you think about is actually very surprising because the calcifications are just dead cells in the duct and debris in the duct. And it may take a long time for this to clear. So in other words, maybe let's say if you left this woman alone, never did anything more, maybe in a year from now, the calcifications will be gone because the body will absorb them. But within the six months of chemotherapy, there's not enough time maybe for them to be eliminated. But it did not represent residual DCIS. This is represented debris in the ducts. And in fact, I have pictures of that, that you can see the duct, normal duct with you know, calcifications in the duct. That is so fascinating. Because I never really thought about, cal- I mean, I've heard about calcifications, and I remember hearing about it in liver mets when they're treated, and they can have residual calcium there, but what's the thinking of why you get calcifications in DCS? Calcifications in DCS essentially represent calcium that leaks out of dead cells that fall into the duct, and then they break up, and, and calcium leaks, and it's a buildup. I think that's my understanding. Obviously, there are other reasons for calcifications in the breast. You know, obviously, we get them with fat necrosis. You get them from benign disease as well, but similar mechanism. But interesting, I was looking at this now in terms of what happens with calcifications in new adjuvant chemotherapy. And actually, the reports that calcifications can go away occasionally. Calcifications can increase because it's more extensive disease. Or calcifications most of the time stay the same. They don't change throughout new adjuvant chemotherapy. And some of the increase in calcifications could be the malignant disease, but also could be areas of fat necrosis that progressively calcify more and they're benign. I mean, could you envision calcifications increasing because of response to treatment and more dead cells? 
that is a possibility as well, I suppose. But again, our traditional thinking was that calcifications, because they represent DCIS, and DCIS does not get killed, let's say, by new adjuvant chemotherapy, will pretty much remain the same. And that's why we usually base our surgical approach based on the extent of microcalcifications. Fascinating. I assume she got post-operative trastuzumab? Yes, she did. She completed a year of trastuzumab. And also, in this case, we also had a debate about post-mastectomy radiotherapy. <laughs> That's a big debate. And she presented with a clinically positive node. And I think most radiation oncologists would give post-mastectomy radiation for that. As you know, we do have some data now from the NSABP that I've presented on a couple of occasions and recently at the ASCO breast meeting where we looked at predictors of local regional recurrence after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And what we found essentially was that this was a combined analysis of the B18 and B27 preoperative trials, all the preoperative groups from the two trials, and close to about 3,000 patients. So we looked at predictors of local regional recurrence, and we found for lumpectomy patients, age of the patient, clinical nodal status before neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and pathologic response in the breast and nodes were independent predictors. For mastectomy patients, actually, it was clinical tumor size at presentation, clinical nodal status, and also pathologic response. That were the three independent predictors. And to make a long story short, when you actually look at the data according to these independent predictors, you find out that if you get a pathologic complete response, or if you actually have negative nodes with pathologic complete response or without, the risk of local regional recurrence is actually pretty low, in the range of 5 or 6 7%. Now, for mastectomy patients, we did not have a big group of patients that were, let's say, under 5 centimeters, had clinically positive nodes, and had pathologic complete response. There were, I think, 21 patients in that group, but there were no recurrences. So that hardly makes, obviously, a series, 0 to 21. But the whole theme of that presentation is that the pathologic complete response is a modifying factor reducing your risk of local regional recurrence. Whether you started with clinical negative nodes or you started with clinically positive nodes. And obviously on the other side, if you have residual positive nodes on pathology and you started with clinically positive nodes, then your risk is significantly high for local regional recurrence. And those patients definitely need radiotherapy. So after long deliberation and again having the implant already in and so forth, we decided also to watch her and not do post mastectomy radiotherapy for this patient given her excellent response. <laughs> 